You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. In the context for our teaching this morning, it says in verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness or faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Hang on, we just jumped to Revelation 22. Which I'm not prepared to teach on today. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for special revelation this morning. We're thankful that you acted in history to bring this knowledge, this truth to us. And God, we thank you for the apostles that recorded it for us. And we thank you for those throughout history that have preserved your word, who have fought to keep your word intact so that we can gather together today to study it, so that we can rightly know who you are. God, we know that we can see you through creation. We know that it gives us no excuse But, Father, we know that without special revelation, we could not re-enter a relationship with you. And so, Father, we thank you that we have that truth this morning, that we have the gospel, we have the knowledge that we need that informs us of how we can rightly worship you again. God, I pray that we would yield to that this morning. We would continue to yield to it for those of us that are believers. And, God, that we would be faithful to communicate it to those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Romans chapter 3 is, I guess, oh, yeah. you got kids that are part of the kids' ministry. They may be dismissed. Romans chapter 3 is probably, 
if I had to teach a chapter on the fly, like somebody just said, hey, I need you to teach a sermon today. Romans chapter 3 is probably one of the chapters that I feel most confident in my knowledge and understanding of. So yesterday, even when I was studying, um, I ended up only looking, I think, at one commentary just to kind of refresh myself. But most of my studying yesterday was going back and studying my own material that I had written or that I had taken notes on in, in previous times. Uh, so Romans chapter 3 is a passage that, that I've spent a lot of time studying, um, and I have one individual in my life to thank for that, um, and it's a not a well-known professor at Liberty, um, and I was even compelled yesterday after I got done studying to email him and to thank him for the sanctification that he helped work in my life. Uh, this guy is not what I would consider a dynamic, charismatic type guy that just captures your attention. He's not the type of guy that you, you sign up to take because of how great of a teacher he is necessarily. Uh, but Dr. Wayne Brindle is a man that radically altered my life through taking a class on Romans with him my senior year in college. Um, and, I, and I told him in my email yesterday, I said, I'd believed the gospel since I was five years old. But I had never truly understood the depths of the gospel until I had the privilege of taking your class. Um, and it was through us working through chapter by chapter, every chapter in Romans, uh, in the course of a semester, um, he had me write a paper on justification and sanctification, the same papers that I'm asking Adam and Tyson to write, because those were terms that, that I had somewhat heard but had never really fully grasped growing up, even though I grew up in the church. There are terms here in Romans chapter 3 that have such depth and, and meaning when it comes to the gospel that I had never explored before until this man helped open my eyes to those things. So I'm eternally grateful for Dr. Wayne Brindle. Uh, I thanked him yesterday and he emailed me back and he was very um, appreciative of me taking the time to encourage him with that. So I wanted to acknowledge him this morning even though you have no idea who he is and you will probably never cross paths with this individual um, he does deserve a lot of credit for uh, my understanding of this passage and what I'm able to pass on to you guys this morning. We've been looking at Romans 1 and 2 already. We enter into chapter 3 today, um, continuing with the theme of the book, God's righteousness revealed in Christ, acquired by faith. We've looked at a lot of terms already uh, and what they mean, uh, the gospel, justification, righteousness, wrath. Uh, and their importance to the gospel. And I think it's important for you to know that memorizing these terms and their definitions, uh, it, it's important not so that you can pass a test or a quiz. And I try to tell my students this. The purpose of memorizing is not to necessarily expect you to be able to quote verbatim this stuff when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody. I've, got, I've, I've memorized a lot of verses in my life. Um, I probably couldn't word for word quote to you a ton of scripture this morning because unfortunately my memory verse understanding has transcended multiple translations over the years. So if I were to try to quote a passage to you, you'd probably get a little KJV, a little ESV, and maybe a little NIV in my remembrance of those passages. But memorizing, what it does is it does allow the overflow of that to pour out to where Maybe I can't give you verbatim every time the definition for these terms that we talk about. But I can certainly explain to you what these terms mean because I've memorized them in the past. So I may not be able to give them to you verbatim all the time, but I can certainly uh, dialogue with you about these things because of time and effort that I've put into memorizing some of this stuff in the past. Same with scripture memory. Uh, I, can, I can go to passages of scripture because I know where they are because of previous memory experiences. I can uh, almost verbatim quote a lot of passages of scripture, which provides assurance to me in times of doubt, provides ammunition to me in times of uh, sharing and teaching with others or in counseling opportunities. Uh, so I encourage you to embrace the opportunities to memorize some of this stuff, to memorize the terms that we talk about uh, throughout the book of Romans, to memorize these passages of Scripture. Again, not simply for the sake of checking off and saying, I've memorized, but knowing that down the road, when you need that, the Holy Spirit's going to use that to draw your attention back to things that you previously knew. Jesus promised it. He said the Holy Spirit's going to bring to mind things that you need to know 
as you're communicating with people. But I think we have some effort in that. We're to put that stuff into our hearts. We're to store it into our minds so the Holy Spirit has a tank to draw from. So I would encourage you as we work through terms in this book to memorize those, commit those to memory so that in times of need you can draw on that knowledge. Somebody give me a quick summary of what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1. Just a a quick sentence or two. What's Romans chapter 1 about? What's the goal, the purpose, what what comes out of Romans chapter 1? Okay, the power of the gospel there at the beginning and then the last section of it. Yeah, the wrath of God towards the heathen. Okay, so ultimately Romans chapter 1 introduces to us the gospel, the power of the gospel, and then everything seems to flow out of that. And so looking back at Romans chapter 1, the big idea there is that the immoral, the heathen person, the wicked, sinful guy is guilty before God. All right, Romans chapter 2, same thing. What's what's Romans chapter 2 about? Okay, God's wrath towards the religious, and who else? God's wrath towards the moral person, okay? I want you guys to, to, to be able to know what some of these chapters are about. Again, that's why we're doing it in this format. Not to go in-depth in every verse, but to give you a good overview understanding of these chapters so that it gives you an awareness of where to go back to when you need some of this knowledge in discussion with other people with the gospel. So Romans chapter 1, it's how you deal with the immoral person. It's how you show his guilt before God. Romans chapter 2, how you show the the genuinely good person, the guy that seems to just really live a a moral, upstanding life, um, seems to hate evil, seems to really treasure good things in life, he's still guilty before God. And then what we a lot of times encounter in our uh, walks of life, the religious person, the person who is claiming and holding on to his religious upbringing. He was born into a Christian family. He was baptized at an early age. He, he went to Sunday school. What I deal with a lot of times, uh, they, they went through confirmation, which for a lot of kids, unfortunately, they translate that with their salvation. Uh, some denominations have like a, a discipleship type class that kids have to go through, which is at, at the heart very good. Uh, it's very important. It teaches them the faith that's been passed down to them by the apostles. Unfortunately, some kids misunderstand it as though, okay, I've graduated and I'm saved now because I now have passed this class, basically. The religious guy is guilty before God. It doesn't matter what experiences he's had in his previous religious life. So, last week in Romans chapter 2, we we said that God judges based on works. He's going to judge us one day by our works. And the the accountability aspect is how much did you know that you were supposed to do? Okay, so he argues that on the day of judgment, those that never heard about Jesus, they're going to be judged by their works. Those that did hear about God, those that had the law, they're going to be judged by God. And they're going to be judged by how well they lived up to the standard of knowledge that they were given. And his point being is that It doesn't matter if you had the Bible or didn't, you're going to fall short of the knowledge that you did have. You're going to fall short. Those that never have heard of Jesus, have never heard of the Bible, have never had the privilege of reading through the Old Testament and the New Testament, they'll stand before God and God will hold them accountable to the law written on their hearts. And they'll be found guilty. They they violate their conscience. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. They choose to do wrong. They don't always choose to do right. They'll be found guilty. The one who has the Bible, who's got it in multiple copies at his house, he'll be found guilty as well. He'll be held accountable to what he knew he was supposed to do. He'll be found to fall well short of God's standard of glory, and he will be judged by God. Anybody who is judged by their works will be found guilty. Again, thinking through that courtroom setting, Paul's the prosecuting attorney, and he's bringing evidence after evidence after evidence against mankind. And we, the reader, are supposed to have that information resonate with us, we're supposed to feel as though every single person is guilty before God. All this evidence is just mounting to where when it comes time to decide, is man guilty or can man work his way to heaven? It's supposed to be obvious to us. Absolutely not. He cannot, he cannot fix his sin problem. Which brings us to Romans chapter 3. So we ended Romans chapter 2 with the Jewish issue, the, the, the religious man, the, well, I'm circumcised. I, I grew up a Jew. 
I've got these privileges. I, I possess the law. And Paul argues that physical birth doesn't save us. It's spiritual birth. Possessing the law doesn't save us. Technically, we have to do the law. We have to be obedient and we have to be perfect. Trusting in external ceremonies doesn't save us. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, confirmation classes, they don't save us. It's inward realities. Does the Holy Spirit indwell us? Okay. Now, he's not talked about salvation yet. So he's talking about a works-based salvation that none of us can perform. Okay. So he's not teaching that if you can do good things, you'll get to heaven. He's teaching that you have to be perfect to get to heaven, and none of us are. Which brings us to Romans chapter 3. Part of this passage, part of this chapter is about condemnation. The last half is about salvation. We're going to see in this chapter that it's about man's righteousness being rejected and God's righteousness being revealed. Then your notes there, Roman numeral 1, man's righteousness rejected. The argument here is that good people don't go to heaven because good people don't exist. Theoretically, good people would go to heaven. But good people don't exist. So it's a, a hypothetical that, that, that is impossible. Good people go to heaven, but good people don't exist, which is the point of this first part of the chapter here in Romans chapter 3. He starts off here at the beginning, kind of tying back in with where he was at at the end of chapter 2 with the Jewish sentiment. And so the Jewish people hypothetically bring three charges against God. Okay, so the Jewish rejection of God here is what we see in, chat, in verses 1 through 8. So he's continuing that theme. He's, he's addressed the Jewish people. Hey, you're guilty before God, just like everybody else. He anticipates the Jewish people responding with some questions. The first question we have is, do the Jews have an advantage? Do the Jews have an advantage? We see this in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul anticipates... The Jewish person saying, okay, if I have to be perfect just like everybody else, and circumcision doesn't save me, and having the law doesn't save me, and being a descendant of Abraham doesn't save me, what is the good in being Jewish? I, I thought there was some type of privilege. I thought there was some type of advantage. Why, why is it a good thing that I was born part of God's covenant people? Why is that significant? Because you're making me out to be just like the Gentile. So Paul anticipates that question. Is there an advantage? To being Jewish. And Paul says yes. Verse 2. Much in every way. To begin with. The Jews were entrusted. With the oracles of God. He says yes there's an advantage to being Jewish. Yes you're under the same condemnation as everyone else. But there's an advantage. And it's helpful to remember the purpose. Of God calling Abraham out. And setting aside a covenant people. You'll remember that we went into some of this when we talked about covenant theology. God's purpose was not to separate a people that were better than everyone else. A lot of times they weren't better than everyone else. A lot of times others were better than them. That's why God had to bring in other nations at times to punish Israel. Because they weren't better than everybody else. They were guilty of the same sins a lot of times as everybody else. So the purpose was never to set aside a group of people that would experience special um, special blessings based on their nationality. The purpose was to set aside a group of people that would ultimately be a blessing to other nations. That, that's at the root of the Abrahamic covenant. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And ultimately, I'm going to preserve your people so that the Messiah can come from you. Remember we talked about the purpose of circumcision was to, there was some spiritual realities, but then there was some also some physical application there. The purpose of circumcision was to remind people we're only supposed to be married and having those type of relationships with other Jewish people because we're preserving a Jewish line for the Messiah to come through. So at the heart of the reproduction process, there was a reminder, if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't remind you of being a Jew, then we've got a problem, right? Like, there's supposed to be evidence here that you're with a Jewish person because we're preserving a line for the Messiah. 
That's why the genealogies are so important in the Gospels. It traces back to Abraham to prove that Jesus has a claim to being the Messiah. It's why the destruction of the temple was so important, because the genealogies, uh, for the most part, were kept there. Which means when it, if and when the Antichrist shows up and tries to claim to be the Messiah, he cannot prove his descendancy like Jesus can. Th- those, those historical records are lost. We've got them preserved for us in Scripture for Jesus. That's such an important aspect of being, or what the purpose of the Jewish nation was. So, so Paul says, yes, there's advantages to being Jewish. You're part of God's salvation plan. He's using the Jewish people to bring Jesus. But then he also says, just on a practical standpoint, you guys have special revelation. You have the oracles of God. God communicated to you the Old Testament. He gave it to you in the Hebrew language, right? Like the, That's the original language of the Old Testament. So it's very clear. God wasn't communicating to other nations like he was communicating to Israel. He wasn't giving special revelation about the Messiah coming to other nations. He was giving it to Israel. He gave it to them in the Hebrew language. That's recorded for them in the Hebrew language. So, yes, there was advantages. They possessed the promises of God. The advantage is you know more. You have more insight into God and his plan. In Deuteronomy 4, 8, the prophets... And the law testified of this. Deuteronomy 4.8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God says, there, there's, there's no other nation that has this type of privilege. I'm giving you laws and insight. Good things. Statutes and rules that are righteous. No other nation has this privilege. No other nation is getting this type of insight. Psalm 147.20. Psalm 147.20 says, He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Romans 9, 3-5 that we'll get to. Down the road, Paul comes back and highlights even further the advantages of being Jewish. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jewish people had insight that no other nation had. They had insight in how to properly worship God in the midst of sin. God set up provisions for how to worship until Jesus would come. The whole sacrifice system was given to the Jewish people so that they could commune with God even though they were still dead in their sins. and Even though they had not experienced the full knowledge and revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, yes, there's advantages. You have special revelation that tells us how to re-enter our meaningful relationship with God. What the Jewish people wanted was special salvation privileges, meaning they were automatically saved because they were born into this. Paul says that's not the case. That's not the case. So the second question that the, he anticipates the Jewish people asking, number three, verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The question two, does Jewish unbelief nullify God's promises? Does the fact that Israel failed in the past, does that nullify or does that have to change God's plan? Paul says no. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So God says no, that's not the case. God is still always faithful despite... Our faithlessness. The third question that he anticipates. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Verse 6. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? So the third question. Is God unrighteous to condemn if it enhances his glory? Is God unrighteous to condemn if it actually makes him look glorious? 
So he anticipates this hypothetical. If we sin and God gets glory by punishing it, how can God rightfully punish us if he's getting glory? If God's all about his glory, how is it right for him to punish me if in punishing me he gets glory? Now, these are questions that Paul is going to really delve into answering further as we get through uh, the book of Romans. Specifically in chapter 6, Paul's going to address the idea, should we sin so that God gets more glory by punishing it? He's going to address that issue. In Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, the big boy chapters that, that's going to require a lot of thought and understanding and, and, and wrestling with that I'm thankful Tyson and Adam are going to preach for us. Not really. Um, he addresses what happens with unfaithful Israel and how is God right to condemn people? How is, right, how is God right and glorious and, and righteous and true and all of these positive attributes if he punishes sinful people? He addresses that in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. So he, he briefly answers it, gives us a satisfactory answer now, but he comes back to these questions later. So we'll leave these questions uh, in our own understanding of the depth of the answers for a little bit later as well. Is God unrighteous to condemn if it enhances his glory? His answer is no. God would be unable to judge the world. He basically says we're not doing God a favor by sinning so that he can receive glory. Our sin is not a favor to God that gives him more glory. And Paul again will address this further in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So we'll see it more in depth there. All right, we come to the second section of this passage, verses 9 through 20. God's rejection of man. So the Jewish rejection of God, here's the questions that the Jewish, the religious, maybe even the churchgoer would have today. These questions, Paul answers them. Now he looks at God's rejection of man. He shows us that right standing with God, that idea of righteousness, being right all the time, standing in the presence of God, which we've talked about, when we stand with Christ in, in glory, when Christ returns, the Bible says we will stand in God's presence. We won't have to, to hide in our, in our guilt. We won't have to be ashamed because we will stand pure before him because of the work of Jesus. So the goal is how do we stand before God one day without guilt? How do we confidently stand in his presence? Paul tells us in verses 9 through 20 that it doesn't happen through our performance. The charge that he brings here in the courtroom setting is that all are under sin. That man is essentially depraved. That he's depraved. Look what he says. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul gives us the doctrine of depravity here and what that means at its essence. In your notes there for a definition, depravity means the inability of man to obey God Due to original sin. The inability of man to obey God due to original sin. So it's all traced back to what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve rebel. Their, their disobedience curses the entire human race. We know this, but it's important that you remember you've got to communicate this to people when you're sharing the gospel with them. This is what breaks down their perception of good works, getting glory or getting them glory from God. It's understanding at the root of the problem, there's an issue that they cannot fix. That they are born broken. They are born sinful. They're born depraved. So you can't get good fruit from a bad tree. That's essentially what we're talking about here. You can't get good fruit from the bad tree. The essence is at the core of the, of, of the individual. The problem exists because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's the inability of man to obey God due to original sin. What it does not mean. Now, you'll hear terms like depravity or total depravity talked about at times, especially if you're reading theological books. Here's what it doesn't mean. Sometimes the word depraved or depravity 
uh, it can conjure up ideas in our minds that's not true. So here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that man is as sinful as he could be. Okay? So we don't look around and say that mankind in general is depraved and then come back thinking, well, not really, because I know a lot of pretty decent people. People that are maybe more decent than Christians in the way that they live, or at least professing Christians. So it doesn't mean that man is as sinful as he could be. Okay? It also doesn't mean that man is guilty of every sin. Okay? It doesn't mean that man is, is guilty of doing every sin that's laid out for us in Scripture. Thankfully, God has given us a conscience. Thankfully, we do have the law written on our hearts. It protects man from being as sinful as he could be. Think about it. There are a lot of bad people out there that do a lot of bad things, but think about how much worse those people would be if they had absolutely no conscience. Our conscience keeps us in check. We still do bad things. We still sin. But by God's grace, one of the results of the Garden of Eden is that we do know right and wrong, and thankfully it keeps man in check from being as sinful as he could be. There is a check and balance there, even for people that deny God's existence. There's a knowledge of right and wrong. And even though they don't live up to the standard of being perfect, they also don't live down to the standard of being as awful as they really could be. So it's by God's grace that even in our choice to sin, that we don't get the privilege of being as bad as we could be. It also doesn't mean that man never performs good works in the eyes of men. Right? Like We all know people that, that don't go to church, that don't believe in God, that do a lot of good things. There's people that, that work with charities, that do good to other people. So it doesn't mean that man is incapable of doing good things in the eyes of men. It also doesn't mean that man has no idea of what God wants from him. So there's a knowledge there of what God desires. We've talked about this, the law of, on their hearts. They have an understanding of right and wrong. What it does mean it means that corruption extends to all of man's attributes and qualities. Corruption extends to all aspects of man. We're tainted from the inside out with sin. All aspects of who we are is affected by sin. It also means that nothing in man can commend him to God for salvation. There's nothing in us that can deserve salvation from God. Nothing in us commends us to a righteous God for salvation. So the focus of this term, the focus of this doctrine of, of depravity or total depravity, the focus is on the lack of holiness versus the intensity of sinning. It's the lack of holiness that's really in mind here, not how sinful we are. It's the lack of holiness, not the intensity of the sin. Again, because we're going to look around at people and we're going to see that there's, from our standards, decent people that live on this earth that aren't Christians. But they're depraved. They're totally depraved. They cannot obey God in a way that earns salvation. They're not good people. Not by the definition that, that the Bible uses for what good means. Which means they can't go to heaven because of their good works. What we see in these verses here, number one, is that man's sin is universal. Man's sin is universal. We have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So we saw the heathen. We saw um, the hypocrite. We saw the Hebrew. Or we saw the immoral man. We saw the moral man. And we saw the religious man, that they're all guilty. But. Just by chance, there's somebody that, that you talk to that says, well, I'm not in any, any of those categories. They make up a fourth category. The first part of Romans chapter 3 is to remind them that they're guilty as well. That there's none righteous. There's none that does good. Man's sin is universal. The proof comes from the Old Testament. We're going to look at some of these passages in the Old Testament that, that remind us of the fact that we are sinful and that all people are sinful. None's righteous. No one stands up to God. No one is perfect. Adam and Eve hide in the garden. This is the first incident of somebody who can't stand in the presence of God. Adam and Eve, we don't have any indication that when God shows up in the garden, that they're freaked out and that they're falling on their hands and faces in the glory of God. It says they walked and talked with him. They were in perfect fellowship with him. 
But when sin enters in, then everything breaks down and they're hiding in the bushes. Like they, they, they can't be in the presence of God. And what we see happening in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, when Jesus returns, is that we're restored. We're restored to where we can be in the presence of God once again. And we can be in right fellowship with him for eternity. And everything in between is God fixing the problem. God's fixing the situation for his glory. Man's sin is universal. The corruptness of man, we see it in Psalms 14, 1 through 3. Paul's drawing on his understanding of the Old Testament. He's showing the unity of Scripture. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul's taking a, a, a piece of my script this morning. He's saying, here's what the Old Testament says. He's not quoting it verbatim. He's not quoting it verbatim, but he's relying on his previous memorization of Scripture to teach out of an overflow of that previous knowledge. Here's what the Old Testament says. And he kind of he uh, rewrites it in the New Testament, but it's drawing from these Old Testament truths. He says, any attempt at good is stained by sin. There's nothing good there that results in salvation. Number two, man's sin reaches to his speech and his deeds. So we see sinful, um, sinful issues flowing out of the things that we say and the things that we do. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. In our language, he's saying what they say stinks. It smells bad. It's awful. It's dead. It reeks of the dead. Their poison is in their bite. He goes on to say that their feet are swift to shed blood. When he talks about feet, he's talking about what we do, where we go. He uses this illustration of the grave to, to, to remind us of the level of corruption that he's describing here. It also reminds us of the effects of sin, that sin leads to death. And while we may not be dead yet, while we're in an unsaved state, we reek of death. Our actions, our attitudes, our deeds, it's dead. It's dead. And that's what Paul's drawing on here in these illustrations. Sinners leave destruction in their wake. He says their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 10, verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. We see from these passages where Paul's drawing on his arguments here for why all of mankind is guilty. Isaiah 59. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Number three, man's sin is a result of no fear. Man's sin is a result of his lack of fear for God. Paul says this all goes back to what I was teaching in Romans chapter 1. When your worship of God is off, your whole lifestyle is off. We said that all that sin that flows out in Romans chapter 1 is because the worship went awry. When they stopped worshiping God rightly, they stopped living rightly. Man's sin is a result of no fear. Psalm 36, 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. It's a failure to fear God, a failure to honor God. It's bad worship, and it leads to to the, the sinful lifestyle or the depraved state that Paul's highlighting here. So going back to Romans 3, verse 19 and 20, and this is uh, where I'll address Angela's question. Now we know that whatever the law says, 
it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, he's drawing off of what he's already taught us here. So this is how these two sections, A and B, go together. In the first part, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Whichever law you have, if you're relying on the law that's on your heart, it speaks to you. If you have God's word, the law, if you're, if you're in the, the, the privileged group, the Jewish group that has the law, the law also speaks to you. It speaks a lot more to you. You, you know more. You have the advantage of knowing more. He says, whichever law we're talking about, whichever law you're going to be judged by, going back to chapter 2, it speaks to you. It speaks to those who are under that law, either the law of the heart or the law of God, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Basically, Paul says the defense rests or the, 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 um, the prosecution rests. Going back to that courtroom setting. Here's all the evidence for why man is guilty and deserves hell. Here's all the evidence why man has messed up and has not been successful in fixing it. And then we, the jury, sit back and we look and we say, all right, where's the defense? It's now time for the defense. And Paul says, the defense has nothing. Every mouth is stopped. Because when we examine ourselves in light of the law that we're supposed to keep, whether it's the the scaled down version that's on our hearts, that the guy in Africa knows but doesn't know fully because he doesn't have the Bible, or if it's the person who was raised in church that has, has the whole law, has been taught about Jesus his whole life, every mouth will be stopped. The whole world will be accountable to God, and they'll know it. They'll know that they're guilty. They'll know that they're guilty. It's why they're fearful when Jesus returns, because they know he comes in holiness, and they know they do not possess holiness. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, this is is why Romans chapter 3 is so good, because up to this point, it's been condemnation, 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 and it's rightful condemnation, rightful condemnation, just condemnation. We're guilty, and we can't fix it. And then you have what I call the biggest but in the Bible, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Luke asks, how does the law and the prophets bear witness to it? Well, we've already seen some passages that we read. I read to you from Psalms, where Psalms communicates to us that there's nobody good. Okay, so this righteousness that's needed, that's manifested apart from the law, it's testified to us by the law and the prophets because the law and the prophets communicate to us that man is sinful. We could really go back to the, to the real core of it. Now, um, Romans 1 and 2 says basically the same thing from chapter 1. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. But really, this goes back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. So this righteousness apart from the law is testified by the law and the prophets all the way back in Genesis 3. Because when Adam and Eve sin and mess up, you don't have any communication from God about, hey, if you'll do this, then it'll make up for what you just did, right? Like there's no law that's given to Adam and Eve there that says, okay, this is how you fix it. All you see there is punishment. He he issues punishment for for Satan. He issues punishment for Adam. He issues punishment for Eve. He tells them about the consequences of their sin. And then he never says, okay, here's your makeup test. Right? Like if a kid fails one of my tests or quizzes, they may come to me afterwards. We may have a discussion. Okay, I'm I'm going to give you some opportunity to make up for this grade. Or, hey, you forgot to turn in your homework today. It's a zero, but if you turn it in tomorrow, it's a 75. Here's how you fix the problem. There's no discussion here from God about how to fix the problem, except for the fact I'm going to have to send somebody to fix this for you. That's how the law and the prophets testify that there's a righteousness available apart from the law. Because at the very beginning, the very beginning, God says, the only thing that's going to fix this is if I send somebody to fix it for you. There's nothing that you can do. You've only sinned one time. 
And it wouldn't even be considered that evil from our perspective today. Like we read that, and it's, it's, it's almost uh, equivalent to a kid eating from a cookie jar when he was told not to eat a cookie. Like they, all they did was eat a piece of fruit when they were told not to eat of it. And yet God says, on that sin alone, you cannot fix what you've done. You can't undo it. You've cursed the entire human race. There's not a list of rules or laws that I can give you that will make up for this. But at the very beginning of God's word, he begins to testify to the fact that there's going to have to be a righteousness apart from the law if there's any hope of anybody coming back to me. And he promises it. He promises to Satan, I'm going to rescue people back to me. I'm going to send somebody that's going to ultimately crush your head. But it's a great point to draw people to when you're trying to share the gospel. Hey, when we messed up, God never communicated that good works would fix it. He always communicated from the very beginning that someone was going to have to come who we know to be Jesus as we continue to read through the Bible. He's the only one that can fix it. So second here, the second big section or the third section, but the second big section, God's righteousness revealed. Paul tells us that right standing with God is possible through trusting in the atoning work of Christ. Galatians 2.16 We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ And not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul's having the same argument here. He's saying, hey, I'm Jewish too, but I have to come to faith in Christ if I'm going to be saved. Can't rely on my Jewishness. You can't rely on your Jewishness. Today for us, you can't rely on your Christian heritage. You can't rely on your church history to save you. Everybody gets saved the same way through faith in Christ. The work of Christ, it's ultimately an imputation of righteousness. Now, we're going to talk about the term imputation when we get further along in Romans, specifically Romans chapter 5. But ultimately, Paul begins to argue that righteousness has been imputed to us. Righteousness has been given to us that are believers. We receive his righteousness. Christ receives our sin. There's what some commentators would call the great exchange where Jesus gets our sin, we get his perfection. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's a giving to us of Christ's righteousness. The salvation of Christ was manifested at a point in history. Apart from man's performance to the law, a salvation testified in the Old Testament. Paul says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me give you some definition for these terms because this section is, is riddled with big, uh, big words. First, forbearance. Forbearance is the delayed punishment of God based on his loving patience. It's the delayed punishment of God based on his loving patience With the intent to execute punishment at a later time. It's the delayed punishment of God based on his loving patience with the intent to execute punishment at a later time. 
Essentially, Paul is saying God was not as wrathful as he should have been in the Old Testament. Now, that's different than what we hear a lot of times is we see we have people say, man, God is so wrathful and angry in the Old Testament. I'm thankful that he lightens up in the New Testament. That's that's the liberal perspective on, on what the Old Testament communicates. Paul says, man, when I look at the Old Testament, I think God should have been a whole lot more wrathful than what I read about. He had a whole lot more reason and he would have been far more just than what I look at and see if he'd have been a lot more wrathful. Paul says that God in his divine forbearance, he he tolerated sin. He tolerates Adam and Eve's sin because he had told them you're going to die. He even delayed their death so that they had time to reproduce so that the Messiah could come and ultimately save them one day. In his divine forbearance, he delayed punishment. Because from God's perspective, he knew before the foundation of the world that Jesus was going to die on the cross, that he would absorb that wrath for us. So in God's perspective, I don't have to punish you now because I'm going to punish that sin in the future. And it's by God's grace that he doesn't punish it now so that he can provide somebody in the future to absorb that wrath. But then he also delays punishment even further for those that don't accept Christ yet. See, for me, my sin has been dealt with. My my wrath has been satisfied. I no longer have to fear that. But for others that have yet to receive Christ, that wrath still hangs over them. And that wrath is still being delayed until the return of Jesus. When Christ comes the second time, then wrath will be dumped out. The remaining wrath, the remaining wrath that's not been satisfied will be dumped out on the rest of uh, humanity that has not accepted Christ. So his forbearance is the delay of punishment. For me, for you, he delayed punishment until the cross. For others, he continues to delay that punishment, Peter says, until Jesus comes back. Not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Second term, propitiation, is the the satisfying of God's wrath. There's no compromise in the holiness of God when he forgives sin. God's wrath is now turned to favor. We can't be forgiven until anger is appeased. So so God's not guilty of building up all this anger and wrath, and then Jesus comes in and and, and lives a perfect life for us, and and then God looks and says, well, I love you guys, so I'm just going to forgive you, and, and that's the end of it. That wrath builds up, and something has to happen to it. So Jesus comes and is perfect for us. We would call that active obedience. He, he actively obeys the law. But then there's a passive obedience where, where Jesus allows something to be done to him. He, he willingly absorbs God's wrath on the cross for us so that all that anger and wrath that's been built up gets poured out. I don't know. Every time I study this, I, I'm reminded of this old movie called Space Camp. Um, it's about these group of high school kids that go to camp um, and and they're learning about the space shuttle and somehow they all end up in the shuttle and this robot that was ahead of his time at that time kind of ignites and wants to grant this kid's wish to go to outer space. And so as they're in the shuttle, he programs everything and um, they think it's just a test. And so they start hitting buttons and they're wanting to give them the experience of this shuttle's about to take off. And then they realize on their sensors that all this pressure is building up and, and, and all this fuel is being burned and, and all this, these outside factors are coming in and they're like, hey, shut it off, shut it down. We're about to launch this thing and, and we can't. There's, there's kids on there. And, and one guy says, we can't shut it off. If we shut it off now, there is so much built up, the whole thing will just explode. We have to give it an outlet. We have to, we have to give it a release. And so they, they launch the space shuttle, and the rest of the movie is how they get back and how somehow they're able to land a space shuttle, even though nobody's qualified to do it. Um, but every time I study about God's wrath and the building up of God's wrath, I think about that picture. It's God's anger building up all through history, rightful anger, not just I woke up on the wrong side of the bed type anger, but genuine rightful justice. That he's got to execute towards sin. And he can't just excuse it. He can't just make it go away. He has to pour it out. He has to execute his wrath. And he does it on the cross. Uh, The next term, redemption. It's God sets us free from our bondage to sin. God sets us free 
from our bondage to sin by paying the price for our release. God sets us free from our bondage to sin by paying the price for our release. So he sets us free from our bondage to sin. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He rescues us from our sins. He fills us with the Holy Spirit so that we can now obey the law rightly. So that we can now fulfill and, and, and walk in the Spirit and, and not satisfy our flesh. And we won't realize that perfectly until Christ returns. But we begin that process now called sanctification. Paul calls Jesus... The just justifier in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The just justifier. Here's what it means. God deals with our guilt problem. He deals with our guilt problem through propitiation. He satisfies the fact that we are guilty before God and we deserve his wrath. God deals with our guilt problem, our legal problem. He does that through justification. He declares us to be righteous and not guilty. He declares us to be perfect even though we're not. He deals with our guilt problem, our legal problem, and our bondage problem. He does that through redemption. He deals with our guilt problem, our legal problem, and our bondage problem. To where when Jesus yields up his spirit, he says, it is finished. It is finished, which is the phrase that you would find in, in ancient times written on bills that were paid. So when a bill, if I owed Ben money and we had a, a transaction that, took place, that takes place and there was a bill that I needed to pay, when I paid it off, Ben would write, it is finished. It's paid in full. And so what we owed to God has been satisfied through the work of Christ. Not because of our performance, but because of the work, the active obedience, the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. We call that the atonement. We call that the atonement because, and you can kind of break that word down, it means that we're now at one again with God. We're at one. It's that state of being at one, reunited with our Creator. God is fixing everything that's gone wrong in the garden. He's initiated that in our salvation. We'll see the fulfillment of that when we're glorified at the return of Jesus. All right. The last section here in Romans chapter 3. We've seen the work of Christ. Now we see the faith of man. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith. Apart from the works of the law, or is it God or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Three things about the faith of man. First, faith excludes boasting. Faith excludes boasting and it eliminates distinctions. Paul says, none of you have a, have a, have a reason to boast here. None of you have a, have a way to boast here because it's all based on the same work of Jesus that saves you. It's the same way of salvation for everyone. All sin, all are accountable, all fall short, all justified as a gift, all because of Jesus. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Doesn't matter if you had the whole law or only a little bit of the law. Your salvation works the same. Christ fulfills the law in your hearts. He fulfills the law that God gave through his word. He was obedient to all of it so that you can be saved because you don't live up to it. Ultimately, faith establishes the law. He says, Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What he's saying is, is that God didn't change his way of saving people. Good people go to heaven. You've got to have perfection to get there. And he doesn't make a, a different way for people to get there. He just makes a different way for you to get, get that perfection. All this argument leading up to Romans chapter 3 is, 
you don't get it through being obedient to the law. The law was given so that you would see your sin. You messed up when Adam and Eve messed up. James says if you disobey one law, you've disobeyed all the laws. Jesus tells the people that your, your righteousness would have to be better than the best of the best if you hope to get into heaven your way through your works. But the law is upheld because Jesus obeys the law. He obeys the law for us, so we get the perfection that the law requires. We just get it not through our performance, but through Christ's performance. So the application for us, we must live, this is a long sentence, so I'll go slow. We must live knowing the law has been upheld for us. We must live knowing the law has been upheld for us, giving us favor in God's eyes. Okay, so previously we were trying to keep the law to earn favor because we were deserving God's wrath. But now we can live as Christians knowing that the law has been upheld for us, which means we have favor in God's eyes so that we may glory in Christ. And the way we glory in Christ is we share him with others. So we live knowing that the law has been upheld for us, giving us favor in God's eyes so that we may glory in Christ by sharing him with others. This goes right along with what desiring God's talking about for those that are reading. This is how we glory in Christ. This is how we glory in our salvation. It's why we live obediently now. Not to earn God's favor, we have that. And, if, and, and we, if we could ever grasp the fact that we've moved from being out of favor with God to now being in full favor with God, it changes the way that we, we live. It changes the, the motivation for why we live the way that we live. Let me give you an example relevant in my own life. Up until the point I was affirmed to be the principal at Trinity, there was an aspect that everything that I was doing was meant to prove that I could be the principal. So I was accomplishing what I was supposed to, but there was an element there where I felt like I've got to do this in such a way to, to, to get your favor, to get the school's favor, to get the headmaster's favor. I've got to, to show that even though I don't have a degree that says I can do this, that I've been gifted and capable to do this job. There's a freeing feeling now that I've been affirmed as the principal. I'm going to still continue to do most everything that I've been doing, but the motivation's different now. I'm not trying to earn my headmaster's favor. I have his favor. I have the school's favor. I have the school board's favor. Now I can simply accomplish my job, do the things that I do for the glory of Trinity. I can share Trinity with others. I can try to draw more families to Trinity by the things that I do simply out of the fact that I love my school, I love my job, I love the ministry. So my motivation for why I do the things that I do now has changed. I'm not trying to impress my school board anymore. I've already impressed them. Now, in this situation, we could never do anything to impress God. We could never do anything to earn his favor. Christ does that, though. Christ has earned favor. He's performed for us so that now it changes the reasons that we do the things that we do. I'm not trying to earn God's favor through my obedience. I already have his favor. I continue to do the things that the law calls me to do, those things that Christ reiterates in the New Testament. I still do those same things, but now I do it because I glory in Christ, what he's done for me. It's now out of motivation for my love for Christ and wanting to draw people to Christ. Not to earn God's favor, I already have it. I already have my school board's favor. I do things now to keep families at Trinity, to get more families to Trinity, because I want everyone to experience what Trinity has to offer. The same in our Christian life now. Once favor has been accomplished, it changes the motivation for why we do what we do now. We glory in Christ by sharing him with others. So it ties into everything that we've been talking about in Jonah, in Jude. Our responsibility to pass this faith on, this gospel on to others. People that we work with, people that we go to school with, people that we live next to, people that we share hobbies with, family members. We don't even share Christ to earn God's favor. We don't share it to earn anybody in this church's favor. We share it because we glory in Christ, what he's accomplished for us. 
we, we, we share it because of what verse 21 says. But now the righteousness apart from the law has been revealed, been made available to us by faith. Let's pray. God, we do glory in the work of Christ this morning. We praise you and thank you that at the very outset, you recognize that in our depravity, we could never fix what we started in the garden. You never placed that expectation upon us. You, you knew that it was an impossible scenario. God, I'm thankful that we can look back from day one when mankind sinned and see that you began to make provision, not by our performance, but through another man's performance. And so, Father, we thank you for Christ this morning. We thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for his active obedience. Where he came to live, to uphold the law, to accomplish everything that we never could. God, I pray that we would be reminded, especially for those of us that have been saved for many years now, we'd be reminded of that depraved state that we used to exist in where there was absolutely nothing good in in of us that could earn your favor. So God, we're thankful that Christ came to perform where we could not, so that we could be saved. God, I pray for those of us that are believers that, that this truth that wrath has been, has been satisfied, that favor has now been applied to us, that that would resonate in our life. That it would motivate us to still do a lot of the things that, that we're already doing, but to do them out of the right motivation. God, that we would recognize that we're not trying to impress you. We're not trying to get you to like us. That Christ has accomplished all of that beyond any of our comprehension. God, I pray that we would live the way that you've called us to live for the simple fact that we glory in Christ. We glory in the gospel. We glory in, in everything that encompasses Christianity. The truth that Jesus is coming back one day to set all things right, to create a new heaven and a new earth where we'll live for eternity. God, help us to be motivated to live the way that we live, to communicate with those that we are surrounded by, not to earn your favor, but to share with them that same glory that's based solely on the work of Christ. God, I pray that you'd protect us from, from being prideful or boasting in, in our church upbringing, in our Christian heritage, in our knowledge of the Scriptures. God, help us to realize that salvation is the same for everyone, that we have no means to boast, that we have no grounds for boasting. God, I pray that that humility would motivate us to share as well. It's only by your grace that we're saved. And so we need to be gracious towards others in sharing this gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the one who attends church, to the one who doesn't attend church. God, help us to be mindful of those that we're surrounded with. Help us to use this faith, this knowledge that we're learning here in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Rightly communicate with others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.